what do you what do you think of this song? <laughs> I I thought I think I'm going to record that and play it every morning just to remind me of the big things in life. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name's Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Dan Heath. He's one half of the Chip and Dan Heath. Um, a full man, though. <laughs> and he was a, he was a legend. He uh, enjoyed the song, but more importantly, he had a phenomenal book. We did his book Switch back in November, I reckon, and then we just did his brand new book, um, The Power of Moments, which was mm. phenomenal. Mate, he was just, just a great dude and a lot of wisdom in there. Yeah. And, you know, he's just been great to chat to. So I hope yeah. you guys enjoyed it. Had some phenomenal sweetie. stories um, to add a little bit of salt and pepper to our recap um, to really flesh out the, the E, I, P, and C of, of moments. Yep, big Dan. He's good. Yeah, so The Power of Moments is fundamentally a book about experience. Uh, our own experience in life, as well as the times when we're thinking about other people's experience, whether those people are our customers or our patients or our students or even our kids. And what we're trying to get across in the book is that when you take apart great experiences, what you find are great moments, or as we say in the book, peak moments. And so in a sense, the book is about how do you create peak moments to make people's experience better? Mm. And it's one of those things that's never it's never really taught or really spoken about. No one really thinks of investing in, into these moments. But after reading in this book, it, it seems absolutely you know obvious that it's something that people should be putting their energy into. Mm. Yeah, it kind of changes the way you you think about life. Um, I, I've experienced that myself. Like we um, a couple of months ago in the states, I don't I don't remember if Australia was in the path of this particular eclipse, but anywhere where where I am in the United States, North Carolina, East Coast. We were in the path of the total eclipse, hmm. um, or at least close. The actual uh, path of totality was about a three-and-a-half-hour drive away, this place called Asheville in the mountains. And, and I'll tell you honestly, uh, before we started writing this book, if you told me, okay, here's the pitch. You're going to take a seven-hour round-trip drive through traffic because there's going <laughs> to be a lot of other yahoos trying to see the totality at the same moment. Um, and you're going to be paid off with a minute and a half uh, that you could just as easily watch on YouTube, I would have said, uh, absolutely not. That's a horrible use of time. But, you know, after, after reading this book, you start to catch on to things mm. like um, three years from now, I, the commute will have long since been erased from memory. And, in fact, I can already feel it happening. I mean, yeah. I can barely remember any of the drive. It's unremarkable. Mm. But being there in person, you know, on a lawn chair on top of a hill with a 100 other people watching as, you know, the lights turned out in the sky and uh, the crickets began to chirp as if it were nighttime. And, and then when the sun came out again, the birds start to, to sing as if it's the first thing in the morning. Like, that's something that stays with you for life. That's a peak mm. moment. Yes. And so it's it's like what you realize is peak moments are worth fighting for. Yeah, phenomenal. Uh, as it, as you said, touching on a lot of things from the book, the bit of duration neglect, you you forget about that seven-hour drive, but the peak is uh, was phenomenal, and it sounds phenomenal. Uh, another one, can you tell us, uh, we, we thought we'd save some of the stories for you about the, you went to the best or the, the second best hotel in, in LA as rated on TripAdvisor, but uh, it wasn't too crash-eyed. Can you tell us about the Magic Castle? <laughs> yeah, so... 
whoever's listening to this, I want you to picture in your head the Magic Castle Hotel. Like, do you have a <laughs> mental image of that? Sounds absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And now let me tell you, whatever you have in your head right now is completely and utterly <laughs> wrong. Uh, the Magic Castle Hotel is neither a castle nor particularly magical looking. It's, uh, it, it is much more like uh, uh, what it is, which is a, a 1950s apartment complex, two-story, that was converted into a motel, painted bright yellow, utterly ordinary to look at. You would think, oh, that's you know a discount place. If you're looking to save a bit of money, you stay there. The rooms are average. The lobby is probably below average. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the pool is average. And yet, the fact remains, according to thousands of reviews on the site TripAdvisor, this is the number two hotel in L.A., uh, outranking places like the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons. And so you just kind of shake your head and you say, how in the world could that be true? Hmm. And the reason is because the Magic Castle leaders have caught on to the power of moments. And, and one of my favorite examples is by the pool, which is, again, totally unremarkable and not lavish in any way. There is a cherry red phone mounted on the wall by the pool, and if you pick it up, somebody will answer, Popsicle Hotline, may I help you? And you can order up cherry or grape or orange popsicles delivered to you poolside on a silver tray by somebody wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. Yep. And they have a, a snack menu where you can order up you know, root beer or uh, Sour Patch Kids or M&Ms or club soda or, you know, I guess not club soda for kids, but uh, cream soda, let's say, and all for free just by asking someone at the front desk. And you should have seen the expressions on these kids' faces. I mean, it was like, what wormhole in the universe have we slipped through where you mm -hmm. can just ask strangers for candy and <laughs> yeah. get it for free? And so again and again and again, the Magic Castle delivers these special, unusual elevating positive moments that other uh, that are utterly missing from other hotels and you can see how it pays off it's like guests are willing to forgive a lot of mediocrity mm. they're willing to forgive average rooms average decor if you deliver some moments that are special and that's mm. that's a good example of what we mean by by peak moments being worth fighting for mm. and it's a, it's another one of those examples where say the other the other hotels on TripAdvisor probably spend um, you know, 50 times the budget on, on that's probably a big number, <laughs> but a, a much bigger budget on just the smaller things like an awesome concierge. But these, just creating these magic moments is is a, a very cheap way to be to be number one in, in, in the town. It's very much purple cow, yeah, and then if everything's, you know, pretty good, it's not remarkable. It's not something you're going to tell people about. But if you say, hey, they have this thing, you pick up the phone and they brought you free popsicles by the pool whenever you wanted, it's, that's remarkable. Exactly right. Uh, that's exactly it. And and notice how you know the vast majority of businesses are set up in a way that systematically stamps out anything that looks like this, right? Because hmm. you can imagine how this would go down in a typical hotel. Like somebody has this idea, hey guys, what if we did a, a popsicle hotline? It would be this kind of weird, mysterious <laughs> phone. And you can just imagine the answers, <laughs> right? But first, first thing somebody says is. Well, you know, that's that's a clever idea and all, but uh, can we really afford to staff a Popsicle hotline? Like, that's expensive, it's labor time, it's a nuisance. Like, what if we just took that Popsicle idea and we just put them in a cooler, you know, by the ice machine, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, that'll be just as good. And, and it's like every instinct that we have in businesses is to make things uh, more efficient and cheaper. 
which are exactly the wrong instincts when it comes to creating moments that people are going to remember. A lot of times, those special moments are a nuisance to administer, and and they they run contrary to you know our expectations of normal business practice. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So the we talk about the uh, the EIPC. So I guess we'll go we'll go through that and talk about elevation first. And I really liked how you said that. First things first, fill the pits. Uh, but after that, don't worry about the potholes so much, and then focus on the on the peaks. And one one quote towards the end of that section, I really like from the book. Uh, and you said that we feel most comfortable when we're certain, but we feel most alive when we're not. So what are some, what are some of the ways that we can sort of uh, disrupt our regular schedule so that we can increase more positive variance and more elevation. Yeah, so this is sort of a, a bad news, good news story. And I know on your um, on your previous podcast you talked a little bit about the reminiscence bump, but but just as a refresher, you know, this is the period from roughly age fifteen to thirty in our lives where if you just ask adults, you know, what are your your most dramatic or most um, memorable moments from your life, they tend to disproportionately pull from that period. And the question is why? You know, someone might be 75 years old and they're still telling stories from when they were 18 or yeah. 25. And and the answer is because that's the time of firsts in our life. It's our first kiss, our first job, <coughs> our first time away from mom and dad, you know, our our first time getting in trouble, our first kid, or, you know, on and on and on. And And what these first represent are upheavals in our lives you know we go in new directions we uncover new things and and those are incredibly memorable experiences meaningful experiences and as we go through life you know the bad news part of the story is we have fewer and fewer of those firsts Mm. simply because you know our life isn't undergoing that kind of upheaval constantly we're making decisions about you know who we want to be and who we want to spend our time with and where we want to live uh, and those may all be good decisions, but it is reducing the amount of novelty that we experience. And as a result, it makes time seem to pass faster mm-hmm. because it's like there are there are fewer kind of mental interruptions or mental um, um, p- pivots, if you will. And so uh, the question is, what do we do about this? Are we doomed to being, you know, living an unmemorable life after age 30? And uh, and the answer is no. I think I think what we can learn is – that old saying, novelty or uh, variety, rather, is the spice of life, I think is a great guide to, to the answer. Mm-hmm. But notice it doesn't say variety is the entree of life or spice <laughs> is the entree of life. Like nobody's going to eat a meal of oregano and pepper, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's a, I think that's good, good wisdom to live by is, is we can refresh ourselves. We can, we can mix things up. We can create the uncertain for ourselves just by taking ourselves out of our comfort zones, you know, trying things that are new, trying things that scare us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in relationships, I think it means making yourself a little bit vulnerable, you know, opening yourself up to someone else in a way that, that sticks your neck out a little bit. I think all those are ways of, of re-injecting variety back in our lives. Mm. And it's quite similar to another point you say in the book, how how um, you got to beware, I forget exactly how you say it, but you got to beware the, I know, the traps of unre- of reasonableness and, you know, and, and being reasonable can just get you in the same kind of rut where, you, where you're not putting yourself in a position where these moments come in. 
No, exactly right. Yeah, we say uh, beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. <laughs> that's, and, yeah, that's powerful. And I think, you know, what I was talking about earlier with, with the, the Popsicle hotline example and, and your colleague who says, well, couldn't we just do the same thing by dumping them in a cooler by the ice machine? You know, that's a reasonable idea. Mm. It's clearly cheaper. It's clearly easier. It's reasonable. But it also sucks all of the peak out of that moment, right? Yeah. And, and we see this so many times in our lives. Like just imagine you probably have some old friend and you've had some outlandish, you know, bucket list dream. You know, maybe it's somewhere you're going to visit. You know, you want to go to Iceland together or you want to make a movie together or you want to, you know, make a road trip. And, and as you get older, it gets harder and harder to pull those things off because mm. there are so many reasonable reasons not mm. to do it, right? You've got a job commitment and limited vacation days and it's expensive and you both got partners and you both got kids and clashing schedules and uh, it takes you 10 days just to connect with each other over the phone because you're both texting all the time and uh, there, there are always reasons that get in the way of building peak moments mm -hmm. and, and, and what we're trying to shake people by the collar about in the book is that you got to fight through those things mm -hmm. because peak moments are worth the fight. <laughs> That's right. And it seems that um, courage is one of the big things to, to be able to do something a little bit unreasonable or um, go up to someone or, and, and show them your gratitude and all these kind of things. It, it, it's really hard to do when you really think about it. It's, it's much easier to just, just keep doing the normal things. Yeah, no question. And you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is really one of the simplest, which is um, – the idea of a gratitude visit. Mm -hmm. And this is a, in the discipline of positive psychology where psychologists are studying what are things that make us happier, uh, this is probably what would be considered a greatest hit. Yeah. Um, and so, so the, the instructions are very simple. You just think of someone who's made a difference in your life and you write them a little letter that talks about what they did for you and why it was so important. And then here's the important part. You, you actually deliver it face-to-face. Yeah. And so uh, if you can physically get in the same room with them, that is that is plan A, B, and C. If that's utterly impossible because you're across the world, you know, do it on Skype or somewhere where you can see each other on video. But the uh, the research is, is just astonishing. What they find is that uh, people who deliver a gratitude visit like that are happier for a full month afterwards. Mm. Wow. A month. I mean, there there are a lot of pleasures in this world. Uh, that can spike your happiness level for minutes or hours. There are very, very few that last a month. Mm -hmm. And and that's leaving aside, by the way, how the people you delivered the gratitude letter to feel. I mean, yeah. imagine how good that must feel to have someone, you know, come out of their way to tell you how important you've been to them. Mm -hmm. So um, on, on a personal basis, I think that's something anybody listening to this can do in the next week. Um, to to make a, a big impact in your own life and someone else's and it's free and probably only takes you know under five five or ten minutes to write something thoughtful and as you said it can change a lot you know make your whole month a lot better and same same for them mm. no question I would strongly recommend people do that uh the yours so that's like sort of a, a big scale uh recognition uh on a smaller scale you said there's a massive recognition gap where 80% of managers think that they're giving recognition, but only 20% of employees feel that they're receiving it. Uh, how can managers do just the, the small everyday things, not the you know employee of the month grandiose stuff, but the small everyday things that people actually really appreciate? 
Yeah, this is this is one of the things that's still a little bit mysterious to me, to be honest, is, is I feel like recognition is just this vastly underutilized mm. fuel. Um, people value it so much. And, and in our early research, we totally missed this, by the way. We were asking people about the defining moments in their careers, uh, and we had our own hypotheses about what those would look like. And we kept getting these responses back that at first read just looked a little bit boring. I mean, mm. people would be saying things like, oh – you know, my manager took me aside one day and said what a good job I had done reorganizing the bikes in the inventory room. Yeah. And when I first read something like that, I was thinking, like, that's a defining moment. Yeah. That's, not, that's not grand enough. That's not, you know. And then I realized, shame on me. It, it, it occurred to me how many different elements that we talk about in the book is contained in a moment of recognition, right? It's the elevation, that, that, that good feeling that lifts you up in the moment and it's insight into yourself you're learning you know by hearing how other people think of you and what they prize about you you're gaining insight into yourself mm -hmm. and of course recognition is full of pride you kind of puff your chest out to realize someone uh, recognized you and it's a moment of connection between two people so here in one very simple seeming moment we've kind of captured all four of the elements of of a defining moment mm -hmm. and so the question is why doesn't this happen more often naturally i mean it's free it's easy. It makes the manager feel good. It makes the person managed feel even better. Why aren't we drowning in recognition? And yet, I don't think any of us have ever met someone who's, who was just kind of bemoaning the fact that they've been recognized too much. You know, like, I'm just tired of all the recognition. And so I think ultimately, a lot of, of well-intentioned leaders try to solve that problem through some kind of formal program. Mm. You know, which is what leads us down the employee of the month trap, uh, which is which is such a farce, right? Because yeah, the employee yeah. of the month it implies twelve people are being recognized once a year, which is about yeah. uh, at least ten x, maybe a hundred x too few to mm -hmm. start with. Yeah. Not to mention this this kind of obligation you feel to pass the award around, even though we all know like Jenny would be receiving the award every <laughs> month if you administered it. So, I, so what's the answer ultimately? I, I think my best advice is you've got to channel your own style so that you're not constantly trying to talk yourself into this. Like if you're a, if you're a jokey kind of person, come up with a jokey award that you give out. Like at um, Yum Brands, which is KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. They have a culture that encourages managers to, to come up with their own uh, flagship award. And one of my favorites was this manager who he would give people like huge piles of, I think it was Zimbabwean currency, <laughs> which was just, which was hugely devalued. You know, so he'd walk up to your desk and give you like $3.7 million, <laughs> which I thought was genius. And other people would give different things. And so, you know, if that's your style, go with that. I, I've met other managers who, you know, they're, they're quieter, they're more introverted, and so they'll write these beautiful handwritten notes, you know, and hand them out to people. And, and that's equally meaningful, even that's though it's a stuff. very different style. But the point is, we should all be doing more of this, um, not only for ourselves, but for the people who, uh, who we manage. That's phenomenal stuff. Uh, another uh, different thing that I want to, to ask, um, I guess for a bit more insight is the multiplying milestone. So you talked about how if you've got a, a big goal of learning to speak Spanish or learning to play the guitar or something that 
you know, one goal is to, you know, just go to lessons every week and then eventually be a world-class guitarist. But the better way to do it is to have these, set up this game where you've got different levels, small things you can achieve as you go. Um, and I guess my, my main question is, when you're at level zero before you've started, how can you sort of project towards the goal and think what are going to be five or six good goals along the way that are both um, tough to get to, but uh, achievable at the same time, sort of progressing in uh, in difficulty? How, how do you set up those when you're, when you're an absolute novice? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it might be that um, that your best bet is to talk to other people who are you know six months or twelve months mm-hmm. ahead of you on the road to whatever it is you're learning. So in, in the book, we we talk about um, this author Steve Cam uh, K A M B, uh, who wrote a book called Level Up Your Life, and I think he's a good case study because his idea was he was going to learn to play the fiddle. He loved Irish music, and he'd always sort of fantasize about learning to play the fiddle. And so this is one of those things that in life we tend to frame the wrong way. We tend to have this vague aspiration like someday I'm going to know how to play the fiddle, however that's defined, very ambiguous. It's not clear what Mm. the finish line is there or when you're going to drink the champagne. Uh, And what's en route to that, it feels like just a slog, right? Mm. Well, I'm going to suck it up and practice and then I'm going to suck it up and practice and then I'm going to suck it up and practice. And so every time it's like you're feeling this burden Mm. to get toward a finish line that you don't even really understand. And so that's a way of of framing an aspiration in a way that almost uh, makes it impossible for you to feel any defining moments Mm. along the journey. And so what we're trying to say in the book is just by tweaking the way you conceptualize the skill you're trying to learn, you can turn one murky abstract finish line into a hundred concrete finish lines, each Mm -hmm. one of which is memorable and motivational. So back to Steve Cam, here's how he did it. Um, His level one was um, commit to one via lesson per week and then practice 15 months per day for six months. So that's a little bit like taking your medicine. You know, that's just, I'm going to show up and do the work at first. And then level two, he says, I'm going to complete... Uh, uh, Celtic Fiddle Tunes by Craig Duncan, uh, a, a book of music. And level three was learning to play concerning hobbits from the Fellowship of the Ring on the violin. And then level four was sit and play the fiddle for 30 minutes with other musicians. And on and on up to his kind of finish line moment was to sit and play the fiddle for 30 minutes in a pub in Ireland. Nice. And, and doesn't that feel just dramatically different to think about? It's like oh, every definitely. step in that journey is its own level of motivation. Hmm. And, and mm-hmm. his inspiration was video games, which if you've ever fallen in love with a video game, you know that the great thing about games is that they, they always give you just enough motivation to tackle the next level. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is there have been tons of games that I have adored in my life. I'm kind of old school, so I tend to think like Space Invaders and Donkey Kong. Yeah. Um, and I've spent many hours playing those games pleasurably, even though I never finished them. Mm. I never hit the finish line. And yet, it was really fun. And if you notice the way Steve Cam laid out his violin mm. mission, even if he never got to that pub in Ireland, he still would have found the journey motivating. And he still would have had a lot of fond moments to look back on. So that's yes. the notion of multiplying milestones. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, through having this conversation and reading your book, and if I look at my calendar now, there's no... There's no real absolute peak moments that are on the horizon for me. And if I, I know at the same time, toward the end of my life, I'm going to look back at the rest of life 
and it's going to be probably described by the, the peak moments in, in my life. So, you know, that's a huge thing to become aware of. So how do you, um, in knowing this, I guess, um, author, I guess your schedule and your calendar to make sure that you keep, you keep having these absolute peak moments throughout the year and, and having perfect days as well. Oh, my voice broke. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's an emotional subject. I know you. Uh, <laughs> it is. There's a deep one uh, from left field. <laughs> yeah, so I I don't want to bring down the the emotion too much, but there's a story in the book that's one of my favorites, even though it's a little bit depressing, about a guy named Eugene O'Kelly that I think speaks to exactly this issue. And Eugene O'Kelly was a guy at the top of his game. He was CEO of KPMG, the enormous accounting firm. Uh, he was 53 years old. He has a wife and two daughters. Out of the blue, he was diagnosed with uh, malignant brain cancer. He had three tumors the size of golf balls, uh, no cure. He was told he had three months to live and probably not much more. And, and so all of a sudden, it's May of 2005, and this guy figures out his daughter is probably going to go back to school in the fall with no dad. Mm. And... What happened next was he had to completely rewrite the rules of his own life. And he, uh, he wrote a, a, a memoir about it called Chasing Daylight that I highly recommend. And essentially what he came up with as a plan to make the most of those last three months was to create moments with all the people who had been special for him in his life. In fact, he, if you can imagine kind of a, almost a bullseye, he sketched out a bullseye where the outer rings were his most – uh, distant relationships, you know, colleagues at work or really old friends. And, and then as he got closer to the center, it was closer and closer friends and relatives. And then the inner circle was his immediate family. And so he planned ways to, as he said, unwind these relationships. You know, he would meet a friend in Central Park and go for a walk on a beautiful day or or meet someone for lunch and have some wine and, and talk about their memories together. And he tried very hard not to have them be, you know, too weepy or depressing, but to be a celebration, you know, a reflection of the time that they'd spent together. And what he came away with was, well, I, I'll just say it in his words. The first two sentences in his book were, I was blessed. I was told I had three months to live. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's hard to make sense of that, right? What, yeah. what, in, what in the world could he mean by being blessed by that? But then listen to this other quote. I think this is worth reading uh, in, his, in his words. So here's O'Kelly. He said, I experienced more perfect moments and perfect days in two weeks than I had in the last five years mm -hmm. or than I probably would have in the next five years had my life continued the way it was before my diagnosis. Look at your own calendar. Do you see perfect days ahead or could they be hidden and you have to find a way to unlock them? If I told you to aim to create 30 perfect days, could you? How long would it take? 30 days, 6 months, 10 years? Never. Mm. I felt like I was living a week in a day, a month in a week, a year in a month. Mm. And and like I said, I know that story is 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 a sad one, mm. but I think the reason he wrote that book was to to warn us of exactly what you were talking about a moment ago, Adam, just yeah. you know, this notion of it's so easy to get caught up in the rhythms of everyday life and the routines and all of a sudden three years go by and all of the things that we really dreamed of doing and that would have been special moments have kind of been swept under the rug um, in our quest to be more efficient and um, more productive. 
Mm. So, uh, so I think that's a good challenge for all of us is to, you know, we don't have to have a terminal diagnosis to yeah. kind of get the message and fight for these things. Yeah, it's one of those things like we're all, you know, we're all probably going to be in that same situation where we realize it's, we've only got X amount of days left. And it's it's going to be it's probably the, the worst way to possibly do it is wait for that to come. Yeah, exactly. get off being proactive, <clears throat> picking this book up, and then and then finding ways to author them into your lives. Yeah, as you say, that one way to do it is to get a terminal diagnosis, or the other way is to just realize that um, you can do it whenever. You don't have to wait for that moment um, where you've only got a certain amount of time left. Uh, powerful story, and I think probably maybe a good way to. Uh, wrap up our convo of power of moments so now we've read switch we've loved we've read uh, power of moments loved them both we'll just after a quick teaser on um decisive uh which which we'll definitely do uh eventually well decisive decisive is all about um what i think is a really fun topic to think about which is bad decisions Mm -hmm. why do people make bad decisions why do all of us make bad decisions and if we reflect back on some of the most terrible decisions we made in our lives. What, what are the forces that underlie those decisions? And so in the book, what we identify are four of the most common, most pervasive, most problematic traps that people consistently fall into, and we help you outsmart those traps and avoid them. So that's the, uh, that's the teaser. Come nice. back for the session. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're definitely going to do that. As we, sort of, as we sort of wind it up, what are uh, either some of your favorite books or any books that have been um, significantly impactful on, on your life? Oh, man, there's been so many. Um, I think one of, my, one of my favorite nonfiction books, not a business book, but um, is by the uh, philosopher Peter Singer. Uh, who wrote a book called The Life You Can Save. And I, I won't get into the whole premise of the book, but I'll tell you, it's one of the few times I could actually feel my brain changing as I was reading a book. Oh, wow. I mean, I came away from that book just kind of motivated to do to do more. Um, business-wise, I think th- there's so many good ones. Uh, one of my all-time favorites is Influence nice. uh, by Cialdini, which I know is part of your book club. Um, uh, anything by Malcolm Gladwell, mm. uh, I, anything by Michael Lewis. I think there's some of the greats. Mm. Um, and what have I read recently? Oh, there's a really good book uh, called The Captain Class, which is uh, almost a, a hybrid between sports and business. And this guy, um, Sam Walker, basically studied the most successful teams across all sports in human history. And so it's this the kind of fascinating you know, uh, it, 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 some soccer teams like like the French handball team, like the the Puerto Rican women's volleyball team, just pe- teams that were like freakishly good by virtue of their uh, comparison class. And his question is, what distinguished them? Um, and and I, I'll just leave it as a mystery because he found <laughs> that there was there was there was one particular thing that distinguished all these brilliant teams. Uh, that that's the captain class. Cool. You've added a whole whole bunch of books to add to the bookshelf. <laughs> so I love that. Um, what, what's I guess? Uh, do you have any other upcoming projects, or do you know what the next book will be? We're looking forward to number five. Oh God, I can't <laughs> even think about it. To be yeah, honest, it's, I'm sure. It, you know, it's just like once you've pushed that boulder up the hill, like you just yeah. kind of want to coast it's coast for a bit. few months. So. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, awesome. Nice. And where, whereabouts can people find you and your book and uh, and all the other books and anything about you and you and Chip? You can find more than you would ever care to learn at uh, the website heathbrothers.com. It's H-E-A-T-H 
And it's got uh, info about all of our books, including the one we've been talking about, The Power of Moments. Mm. Phenomenal. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. That was awesome. Thanks so much. And and I will cherish forever uh, that song that you recorded (laughs) at the end of your your book club episode. (laughs) Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you, we've read some bloody good books this season so far and you can win them all yep so we've got a, a prize so there's three ways you can enter this and it is absolute bonanza yeah man, it is a bonanza you know <laughs> seven habits highly effective people if you can grow rich start with why to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win so you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey very short two minutes yeah and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes the the second one is leave a review for us yeah we'll find that and the third way is to just buy a book yeah have a read send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com and yeah that's it you can enter three times three yeah, chances three to times win. each time probably maximum three minutes time investment yeah. and you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use yourself or give us gifts yeah good shit